Hey everyone, Dan Keeler here, founder of Frontier Markets News, bringing you more fascinating insights about the trends and stories unfolding beyond the limelight, away from the glare of global media, and in this case, well outside that glare. I was tempted to call this podcast, They Steal Your Stuff from Time to Time, or Until You Get Wiped Out, or Look Where No One Else Is Looking, or even Democracy Is Bad for Developed Markets. But I decided to stick with plain old Frontier Markets News. Hang with us for a while and you'll find out why. I'm joined today by Marshall Stocker, who is the co-head of Emerging Markets Debt at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. We're talking about the science of aligning investments with expected developments in countries in the emerging world. But we're also talking about the moral aspects of that, the responsibility that fund managers, as human beings and responsible global citizens, have to take into account more than just the financial interests of their investors. Even if you're not an investor, you'll hear some really thought-provoking insights about the power of capital, for good or for ill. I have to warn you, this podcast will run a little longer than our usual 30 minutes. We're talking for about 40 minutes. But trust me, it's well worth it. On that note, though, you didn't fire up this podcast to listen to me. So let's hear from Marshall. So Marshall, thank you very much for joining me. I'm really glad that you're here. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how you came to be the co-head of Morgan Stanley's Emerging Markets Debt Team? Well, Dan, thanks thanks for having me. It's it's quite a privilege to be part of this. My path to being co-head of Emerging Markets uh, Debt at Morgan Stanley is probably as circuitous and colorful as the asset class asset class is. It goes back. Perhaps 20 years ago when I first published some academic research that looked at the relationship between economic freedom and investment investment returns. And I know we're going to cover that. The the results of that study is, is very interesting. And what I really have focused on is is how changes in economic freedom relate to not only not only socioeconomic outcomes, but also investment also investment outcomes. And so my career has led me all over the world looking for markets and assets where changes in economic institutions may make assets more valuable. And as a kind of sidetrack to that, I found myself in the early 2000s in Yemen, of all places, advising the government on economic liberalization. That was my first step into deep emerging markets in the country of of Yemen, trying to extol in a track two type dialogue the importance of classical liberalism and free markets. And it was perhaps that street cred in the early 2000s in Yemen, combined with this academic research I had done, that really put me on a career track to be in emerging markets where countries' economic institutions are Kind of so frequently changing. Um, along the way, I spent some time living in Egypt where I was managing a direct investment fund. That means I was CEO of some operating companies. That time overlapped with the Arab Spring and certainly uh, gave me pause to consider returning to portfolio investment where I find myself now. And that, that was over 10 years, about 10 years ago now that I joined Eaton Vance's global fixed income team to focus on, again, 
sovereign level investment decisions that relate to changes in the economic institutions of, of a country. And here I am after most recently being the director of country research. I'm now the co-head of the Morgan Stanley Investment Management Emerging Markets Debt Team. And I guess I should say, by the way, I also finished a PhD on the topic along the way. It was a, it was a thesis that I titled uh, The Prices of Freedom and how capital markets actually price freedom in inside of assets. Um, well, as you say, quite a circuitous route, but also one that took you through um, really some very interesting areas in the emerging markets, both in terms of themes and locations. Um, I'd love to take you back to, um, to Yemen there for a minute, actually. What was actually happening in Yemen at the time that you were working there? So um, at the time, the USS Coal had just been blown up off the coast of, of Yemen. And that academic paper that I had published on the importance of liberalizing economies had been picked up by an advisor to the former governor of South Carolina, a fellow by the name of David Beasley. And your listeners might recognize that he, he won the Nobel Peace Prize two years ago. But this is, again, 20 years ago, someone got that paper into his hands and he invited me to go to Yemen to try and talk with a country's leadership who isn't real fond of the West and liberal values and talk about building bridges economically so that we perhaps spend less time fighting each other. And so this is track two dialogue, right? When there's not official diplomatic exchanges, you go on kind of exchanges of individuals and ideas. I went with a business delegation, again, to talk about how to attract investment to a country and how improvements in economic institutions will attract those. So that's how I kind of wound up in Yemen. That what was going on. Um, I, can, I can remember and uh, I, I can remember vividly waking up one morning and they assembled us in the basement of a hotel for our brunch. And uh, he, he was known as Governor Beasley at the time. He said, I just want you to know that when your families wake up this morning, they're going to see that the embassy was just attacked in Yemen today. And you guys were just there last night for a cocktail party. So if you don't want to go forward, we can understand. Everybody, of course, went forward. We all, the delegation felt very, very uh, strongly about the importance of cross-country dialogues, human-level dialogues on the importance of, of economic liberalization. So yeah, it was a very colorful time in Yemen's history. Uh, very sad outcome for that country now, uh, but nonetheless, that was the effort we put in about 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I don't want to get too sidelined on that, but um, you know, how did that affect you? Obviously, where Yemen's ended up now, it's it's a catastrophe by you know any standards. How's that affected your feeling about the work that you do in the sort of financial world relating to emerging markets and relating to this kind of you know, really, really important um, developments at state level and the impact that, that your work can have at that level. Yeah, I would, I would say experiences like that for emerging and frontier market investors are incredibly powerful. It demonstrates really how important it is to direct capital and what the consequences are of, of directing capital. You can... By directing capital to countries that are improving their ex economic institutions, you can lower their cost of capital. That improves their 
labor force. It improves their productivity. It improves their socioeconomic well-being. So in a world, right, it's a dismal science economics because there's a scarcity of resources. And when you're put in charge of allocating those resources as allocators of capital, it's incredibly powerful and important responsibility. So not only does one need to allocate for the best interest of one's investors, one's also needs to spend time trying to make their investment more valuable. And the way you do that in emerging and frontier markets is engaging with country leadership and thought leaders in these countries and talk about the importance of the rule of law and transparency and soundness of the money supply. All of these weaknesses that we find in economic institutions that characterize emerging markets but our duties to uh, that we have as allocators of capital. So that experience was very powerful. I think if you talk to any anyone that has a couple of decades in the industry, they'll they'll be fellow travelers. They've had these experiences with the importance of of engaging and directing capital to these to these markets that that are really hungry for it, hungry for ideas, hungry for capital, um, hungry for the improvement in socioeconomic well being. That that quite frankly they deserve as human beings. Yeah, it's really interesting and heartening to hear you say that. Um, obviously, that's one of the things that I've focused on in the decade or so that I've been involved in reporting on small emerging markets. It's really just the the power of capital, but obviously wielded in a responsible way. And that's, that's a big caveat, I think, as um, a justified impression among many people that capital isn't always benign um, and definitely does not have the local population's interests at heart. And I think it's, um, it, you know, it's reassuring to hear that, that you're, you've been involved in organizations that are trying to address some of those issues. Um, I think that that does bring us quite neatly to this concept of economic freedom and its influence on both bond performance, I guess, as a consequence of its influence on the overall governance of a country. Um, so you've done some work on this, and it's um, it's something that I think, based on our conversations before, that informs how you work as an as an investor. Um, so tell us about this concept of economic freedom influencing bond performance. Yes. Yeah, so. I think your listeners are probably really familiar with political and civil freedom, and, and I'm in the habit of looking at Google images, and you can find images of political and civil freedom. It, it's, it's like really hard to find an image of economic freedom, but it is a critical freedom and is actually the determinant freedom for many indicators of socioeconomic well-being or investment returns, way more powerful than political and civil freedoms. And I remember back in the early 2000s, again, shortly before I wrote that seminal paper, where the Fraser Institute had just rolled out the Economic Freedom of the World Index. And the academy was really showing this really strong correlation between lifespan, like, the higher your economic freedom, the longer you live, the cleaner your air, the more literacy, the less child. I mean, it didn't matter if you were left, center, or right on the political spectrum. Like living in a country with high economic freedom is is universally good. And so I saw a presentation on this and I thought, wow, this is really cool. This is interesting. Economic freedom is really powerful for socioeconomic outcomes. I wonder if as investors, we should just like invest in the 10 most economically free countries in the world. Like, Hong Kong and Singapore, I used to joke, I could be done by like 9.35 every morning, like five minutes of work and I'm done. And so because I'm trained as an engineer, I wanted to look at the numbers and prove this to myself. And it turns out in that first paper, there's no relationship between the level of economic freedom and investment outcome. The relationship that exists 
is when there's a change in economic freedom during the investment horizon. So if you identify a country that increases economic freedom while you own it, your asset is going to outperform. Now, in that first paper, I looked at equity markets. But in subsequent papers, uh, and Lawson and Roy Chudry looked at this in bond markets, what we find is markets price the level of economic institutions pretty darn well. So if you look at the the bottom quartile of economic freedom, right? This is deep frontier emerging markets, right? The bottom so, frontier. Just, yeah, go, just, sure. Just to clarify that, what what would be a key characteristic or what would be a couple of key characteristics of economic freedom? Like what are you actually measuring and identifying there? Right. So there's six areas that are, are, are examined by what I'll call kind of the touchstone index, which is published by the Fraser Institute. They look at the size of government Right, so larger government, meaning it owns more private enterprises, is bad. Right, so size of government. They look at um, the soundness of the money supply. Right, high inflation, low inflation, volatile inflation, the ability to own foreign currency or not. They look at the rule of law. Is it easy to settle contractual disputes, and can you settle them in a timely manner? They look at uh, the freedom to trade, or not. They look at the regulatory environment. How easy is it to start a business or not? For example, that data uh, once came from the World Bank. And they most recently added a sixth area, which is gender rights. Because what they were finding is that, okay, you could find an economically free country for men, but not for women, right? This typically characterizes a lot in the Middle East. And so those are the six areas. And what we find is that if a country has, say, a low rule of law, it's very hard to settle a contractual dispute. It costs a lot of money if you want to borrow. So the bottom 25% of countries in economic freedom, their yield spreads are incredibly wide. Right now, we think they're over 600 basis points wider than the top 25%. So the markets price assets correctly, right? So you earn a higher yield by taking on the risk of weak rule of law because they steal your stuff from time to time, right? And that's why you make just as much in a low freedom country as you do a high freedom country because it's periodically taken away from you in a low freedom country. But if you find a low freedom country that's like increasing economic freedom, the rule of law goes up, the discount rate, talking to the CFA crowd now, the discount rate goes down and your asset becomes more valuable, right? So that's the that's the kind of the mechanism we see it in uh, bond yields. I've already talked about equities in that seminal paper. Um, FX carry is higher in low freedom countries, right? They have to have a higher local interest rate. The frequency of of currency devaluations is higher in low economic freedom countries, and so the capital markets are pretty good. Um, the, the- those assertions are all based on research you've done. That's so. That, so it is definitely true that you get more devaluations in low economic freedom. In, countries. Indeed, indeed, definitely, yeah. definitely true. Uh, that's I just kind of outlined a bit of my PhD thesis and some of the papers. I because it's and, and you bring up a good point because we can kind of hope about how the world works, but the data doesn't always show that out, right? And you'd like to think, wow, countries with a high rule of law outperform countries with a low rule of law because they're good. It, that's not true. Actually, in the very short term, which can be years, low freedom countries outperform high freedom countries, right? Uh, fixed income investors know this is carry, right? This is the carry until you get wiped out. 
right? And so the, the, the level of conditions is priced well. What the market doesn't do is they don't price the change in institutions. So for people like us who spend our time meeting with governments and oppositions and bank CEOs and think tanks and saying, hey, what is, what is this country going to do in the next two years? We can get an idea of how institutions might change and which assets will become more valuable or, or less valuable. And oh, by the way, maybe even influence the policy outcome as part of those discussions. So as an investor, um, you've obviously realized that, or you've worked out that there is this fairly reliable correlation between economic freedom and the change in economic freedom, the opportunity to enhance the performance of your portfolio. What sort of things are you on the lookout for? Are you just looking for elections that might change the governance standards? Are you looking for um, corporate changes? Like what, what, what sort of changes do you look out for? Yeah, so you, you have hit on the state of the art of academic research right now. We know that economic freedom is good. We know that changes in economic institutions impact investment outcomes and socioeconomic changes. But what we don't know is like, why does economic freedom change? We just, we just don't know. Um, I've published a couple papers on it. Others are working on it. We're starting to think about understanding what's going on, but it's bits and pieces. One I can tell you is that the political system seems to matter. And the, and the answer here is a little nuanced. It's not always like you would hope it to be, going back to what I said earlier. Democracy is good yeah. for emerging markets. It's bad for developed markets. That's what the data shows us. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. If you're an emerging market country, which has a low, they have low levels of freedom, right? It's almost a tautology. That's why you're an emerging market. Those countries, if they're democracies, are more likely to increase economic freedom in the future. Now, the narrative here is probably that improving your institutions is really painful. It involves dislocational unemployment. Sometimes it involves shock therapy for those of you who are students of, of the felling of the Berlin Wall. It's painful to improve your economic freedom. But if you voted for it, you're probably going to put up with it. And that's why democracy seems to help emerging markets. So that is an input to what may cause changes in economic freedom. If you look at high economic freedom countries, right, where we live, where we're sitting right now, where we vacation, their economic freedom is actually more likely to decline during, uh, in the future if they're a democracy. And this is a new development. This really started around the year 2000. And usually people light up when I say the one word that explains it, right? It's populism, right? What we're seeing is populist activity conducted in a democratic society that has a high level of economic freedom that chooses to reduce the rule of law that chooses to expand the scope of government into private enterprise, that forces higher inflation to fund uh, fiscal imbalances. And so democracy as an input is a little bit nuanced, good for where you and I spend our time in emerging and frontier markets, but not universally good. The, uh, the other bit I'll tell you, and it's a rich topic, we could talk a lot about why, why economic freedom changes, is crises yeah. relate to changes in economic freedom but we never know which direction. So they're an event that seems to trigger a change in policy, but like Rahm Emanuel said, right? Like never let a good crisis go to waste. Governments sometimes improve economic freedom as a result, and sometimes they decrease it 
I just know they're going to change policy as the result of a crisis. And so that's where an election or an unscheduled change of power or a crisis really sucks us in to see what's going on. But it's not something that you can use sitting in a desk and program up a trade. You got to be in country talking to people about what are the problems, why did the crisis happen, what are what are the thought leaders talking about to try and determine the direction of change in economic policy. Yeah, just to work out which direction the crisis is going to to, to drive the economy exactly. and, and people and governance and so on. Um, that that's fascinating. It's really interesting. I feel like you've also just kind of opened the door to a whole different conversation, which we're not going to have right now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it's, it's, maybe we'll have that discussion at some point in the future. Um, so again, to sort of drag this back to the the investment uh, arena, um, so you're obviously on the lookout for certain triggers, for certain characteristics when you're um, doing your research. Firstly, um, do you have any other characteristics that you can share with us that have been reliable for you in indicating that things are either going to improve or, or perhaps get worse. And second, um, does this involve an awful lot of research on the ground? You mentioned that you can't do much of this sitting at a desk uh, programming trades that you actually need to get out there and talk to people. Is that a, uh, it, it, does that mitigate in favor of, um, of actually having people on the ground in the countries in which you are looking to invest? Uh, yes, it does. I'll, I'll come to that. Reliable indicators, Dan, um, there's no universal truth, but there is a kind of a collection of experiences that, that builds a data set. I think it's important to see that the government has a mandate. That, that, and that can mean something different to everybody, whether it's an autocratic system or a mixed system or a democracy. The government has to have a mandate. If they are a weak government, it's not likely that they're going to be able to push through or maintain changes in economic institutions. So that's one thing. Uh, that that is pretty reliable. Another one, and I'm not going to give away the, the family secrets here, but another one I think um, is is pretty pretty straight pretty straightforward. Uh, once you look at the data, is that positive changes happen in economic institutions when nobody's looking? It turns out that changes seem to happen improvements, I'm sorry, I want to be careful here, improvements in economic institutions are more likely in the absence of a crisis. I previously said when a crisis happens, we don't know if they're going to go up or down. We don't. We just know they're going to change. But in the absence of a crisis, when everyone's employed and they're happy about the government and they're going on vacation, for some reason, that's when governments take the time to do the right thing privatize mm. companies, improve the soundness of the money supply, sign free trade agreements, right? They don't sign those free trade agreements under duress in the middle of a banking crisis. So that's maybe a second reliable indicator is look when no one else is really looking for something going on. The, I mean, that seems that that seems to sort of make sense logically, just that you've got stability. So therefore, yes. things should be able to improve. People have got, as you say, a little bit more time to actually think about how to manage things to develop a more stable and more prosperous future. Um, in, in, indeed, the second aspect you said, which is how, how do you collect this mosaic of inputs to try and figure out which direction is economic policy going? Is it going to last? What areas might they change in these economic institutions? That is good old-fashioned 
in-country research. It's it's a great area for, I think, I think younger folks to consider building their career because the ability to collect unique informational advantages will last, I think, for a very long time in emerging markets as compared to developed markets. Getting in-country necessitates probably working for a well-resourced firm that can has assets to fund you going in and spending time in country. And we, on any given, any given day of the week, one of our 54 team members is in country someplace. And so you have to be there. Now, why do you have to, why do you have to be there? Well, you have to have a lot of conversations. It's a mosaic approach. There's no one individual who's going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. You have to build this mosaic. Secondly, and Edward Snowden taught us this, right? Electronic communications are very closely monitored. And when you're talking to the opposition party about whether or not the government is actually going to change uh, the court system and improve the rule of law, yeah, that's not something they really want to float out there in an electronic medium. And so, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to have private, honest conversations about the economic institutions in a country with any individual. And in the end, it, it's, it's quite frankly very rewarding in the human-to-human -human interaction that, that takes us into emerging markets. So it's important because to collect information, you have to be there where people are and present yourself in a manner that makes them comfortable. And that's, that's being in country. I will, I will add one caveat. And I've lived in country. I've lived I've lived, I lived in Egypt for several years. One does need to be very careful about having a permanent presence in any country. We follow 100 different emerging frontier markets. It's hard for us to have a permanent presence in any measure of countries. But people can go local. And they can, they can lose sight of what's going on, right? So um, you hire... What, what, what's the downside of that? You don't get the truth. Right. If, if, if I were to hire a couple analysts and put them in Vietnam and ask them to comment on Vietnam, I doubt I'm going to get a report from them that says, you know what, forget Vietnam for the next decade because, uh, you know, there's been a fill in the blank, a revolution. They've um, been subject to sanctions. It could, it could be any country. Right. And that is a principal agent problem in that your agent in the country is looking out for his own job, he's going to probably deliver or she's going to deliver a positive view or more positive on the view. And so it is, you do have to be very careful about going local. I think the best solution is to go in and out of the country on a regular basis. So you get a sense of what's changing, what's not changing. You maintain yeah. your relationships. You have the leisure of coming back and continuing conversations. But going local has a big principal agent problem for stewards of capital. Yeah. So you, your interests start to change from being an objective observer to what's going on to being a participant in the actual local economy at the very least. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Um, so just quickly, one of the things that uh, I'd be really interested in hearing is specific examples where you could sort of point to a change in the level of economic freedom that you perhaps foresaw or you hoped would happen and the impact that had on the investments that you that you had there. You're not going to hear it anywhere else but here probably, is Uzbekistan. In Uzbekistan, you have a country that was for all practical purposes 
deeply behind an iron curtain, a black hole of economic institutions that has begun lifting capital controls. They've been addressing inflation through orthodox monetary policy, right? Raising local interest rates. They're privatizing assets. And they're conducting some tax reform, which is not lowering taxes. It's expanding the tax base so that it is more equally distributed, formalizing the economy. And when you have a country that is one of the lowest levels of economic freedom in the world, just do that, right? Merely going from among the very worst to just pretty bad, there's a tremendous investment opportunity. We know that that correlates with increases in socioeconomic well-being. This is a country that just has given up on the bad policies of central planning from the last century. And so that one's really, really exciting. It's very difficult to access. That's why in this space, professional management is perhaps more valuable because we can get in country and write private assets or loans that um, allow us to gain access. So at either end of the spectrum, you can see there's changes in economic institutions that are pretty encouraging. Well, to, to dig into Uzbekistan a little bit more, um, when did you first get interested in that? Was it during the change in leadership um, or was it since then? It was, it was before that, right? We try and follow, we follow a little, you said 192. Wow. Uh, we follow, we follow a little more than a hundred, I would say. That was probably a huge exaggeration. <laughs> hundred. Yeah. It's, um, I have to go back and look at our list here and see what we're missing. Uh, we're looking at maybe a hundred, hundred different countries, which we think are reasonably investable in any of the asset classes, whether it's, um, debt FX or currency, I'm sorry, debt FX or equities. Um, and so it was on our radar, but we knew that institutions had been pretty poor. And look, you, you kind of pick up things in your travels. Hey, there might be a change in the government or a change in their policies. And so you drop in, you listen to what's going on, you find an exchange rate that is ridiculous, that there's a black market, and you know that you can't invest yet but you start ferreting it out. And so when did we get involved? Yes, I would say slightly before the change in leadership. We were trying to understand what was going on in the first place. It goes back to why do you go to North Korea, for example, right? Just trying to understand what's going on. And then when you start to see something change, you recognize it. And so that's it. And, and sometimes you have to wait for some of the changes. In this case, you had to wait for the FX to depreciate. They had to step up and let the currency float, which they did. And that was kind of the entree, I think, for those of us who were the most earliest investors in Uzbekistan. So what about some that um, where you've been able to spot perhaps downsides appearing and and defend against that, protect against yeah, that? Yeah, sure. So uh, one, one I'll example, I'll give you one, one metric I'll give you that concerns me greatly. I'm not going to name the country, but per capita GDP. Right? Income per capita is really, really important. I think it has a lot to do with the human psyche. And if you find a country that's had a number of years, more than a decade of decreases in GDP per capita, which is a combination of poor income growth due to weak and deteriorating economic institutions and high population reproduction, you are creating the circumstances for socioeconomic unrest, social unrest, I should say. 
and and that's what I would steer your 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 listeners well clear of is countries where you can factually see a deterioration in per capita wealth because unless that changes, you are going to have a fight over a shrinking pie. You're not going to have a conversation about how to grow the pie. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, that sort of brings me obliquely, I guess, to, to my final question really, which is that, um, you know, we're talking about some areas in the world that people would consider to be fairly edgy, to say the least, um, from an investment point of view. Mainstream investing over the past few years has been pretty good in terms of performance. If you've had your money in the S&P, you've probably done quite well over the past, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years. Um, when you look at investors who are focused on emerging markets, what sort of sentiment are you seeing? Are they are they getting more interested again or are they still a little bit gun shy given the differential in performance between emerging and developing? I, I very much think that investors are tuning back into emerging markets and there's several reasons for that. First, just because they're investors and they're looking for less expensive assets, assets that have fallen in value more or represent a greater value than maybe what's found uh, elsewhere in the world. And right now, we see real interest rate differentials in emerging markets near two decade highs. So what's happened? Emerging markets have been incredibly orthodox. They know inflation is not transitory. It's kind of a decade long problem usually in an emerging market. So they raised rates very aggressively, way more aggressively than developed markets. And so the real yield differential is very attractive. It's caused, I, I love this, emerging market FX underperformed the G10 currencies, but it, emerging market FX outperformed the G9. It is entirely a US dollar phenomenon. What's happened is central banks and emerging markets have been so incredibly orthodox, they raise interest rates to address inflation. That, that has protected their currencies. So the, it's not so much a currency opportunity in emerging markets right now as it is a real interest rate differential opportunity, number one. Right. Secondly, credit spreads have widened reasonably, uh, have, have gotten reasonably wide and a bit bifurcated, meaning some pretty um, um, emerging market countries that are not, I would say, near investment grade have gotten hit very badly when they've been improving their economic institutions. And so there's a for sale sign on emerging market countries improving economic institutions when it comes to their credibility. So there's a hard currency trade here also, uh, along with the real interest rate. And we see the valuation differential on equities also near all-time wides versus developed markets. So number one, that was a little long-winded, but that's the data, is that- and, and the sense is that those low valuations are not warranted or justified. Exactly. The the whole economic slowdown has punished emerging market assets way more than it should have, and emerging markets have been way more orthodox in their monetary policy response. Right. Um, secondly, I think there's some concerns about populism in developed markets, whether it's Brexit in the UK or the populism that we have seen here in the United States that may not create the environment where institutions will improve the value of, of assets. But you do see that in emerging markets. So investors are starting to tune into, hey, emerging markets really still are the countries 
that are moving towards free markets. And that's where we can find the opportunity. So we're seeing, we're seeing that aspect also. And so I, I don't think I've been this busy on the commercial side with folks inquiring about what opportunities are there in emerging markets. They always ask, let me hear about much more than just China. They want to hear about the full palette that's, that's out there. And, and, you know, the prices, I think, give them a really great opportunity to be looking here while in developed markets, they're still on the precipice of going into a recession and getting worried about that. Yeah. So just to take this conversation full circle, really, if you're seeing more interest from investors in emerging market assets one way or another, um, and you were talking earlier, very early on, about the power of capital and it's it, it, the implications of bringing new money into into countries that are in that sort of development stage. Do you think that this could have a beneficial impact, that there could be a virtuous circle developing here? Are we going to see this capital deployed in a um, in a sort of morally sound and, and socially acceptable way, or is it just going to be just more money arriving and more problems? Well, I, I, with the reach of your podcast, I think we will hopefully improve the deployment of capital. <laughs> Look, we, I think you've just created a new mission we, statement we, for me. <laughs> there you go. We we have to be realistic here, right? We know that loose monetary policy that we've had for more than a decade in the U.S. right and developed markets has basically led to every a, a bubble in every it led to a bubble in everything. Money went everywhere. Money went to countries that were were lowering economic freedom and increasing economic freedom. The power of changes in economic institutions is actually stronger in describing investment outcomes in a bear market than in a bull market. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is if we get into a bull market in everything, I'm not so sure the answer is what you want to hear, Dan, which is capital will be precisely directed to this best stewards in emerging markets. It won't be. It'll go all over the place. There'll be a reach for yield and it will discourage countries from improving their economic institutions. But if there's a modest scarcity of capital, which I think is the spot that we're in now, we can have these candid conversations with government officials, with opposition party members, with locals about, hey, this is how you can attract more capital than you have right now. If there's this like surefoot of capital, I really can't promise you that anyone's going to try and improve their institutions. But if there's a scarcity of capital, that's exactly what I think is going to happen. That's the environment I feel like we're in. So the answer to your question is, yeah, Dan, I think so. I think in this global scarcity of capital that we have right now is defined by the higher interest rates. We will see an improvement in institutions, even though we will be directing more capital to emerging markets because that's where the value is. That's where the institutional change changes. So I'm very much an optimist um, unless the floodgate of capital uh, you know, gets reopened. And let's, let's hope that doesn't happen. We see what the consequences are today. Well, that seems like the perfect place to put a bow on this. Marshall, thank you so much for joining us and wrapping this up on at least a cautiously optimistic note. Indeed. Thanks for the opportunity, Dan, and I look forward to the podcast series. So you've been listening to the Frontier Markets News podcast from 
Frontier Markets News. Today's guest was Marshall Stocker, who is the co-head of Morgan Stanley Investment Management's Emerging Markets Debt Team. And I am your host, Dan Keeler, founder of Frontier Markets News. As always, you can get the latest summary of news from the Frontier and Growth Markets at FrontierMarkets.co. And that is, of course, .co, not .com. You can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter, which will land in your inbox every Saturday and provide you with a smorgasbord of the key news from smaller and emerging markets. The music on this podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers from silvermansound.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and want us to be able to produce more of them, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your followers on social media, your family, anyone else you can think of. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send me an email at dan at frontiermarkets.co. And that's a wrap. Until next time. <laughs>